Welcome to the third and final episode in the Data Danoon Conversations series. Today is an opportunity to share a little more about the journey of this project so far. Folks who've been involved in this project for many months and in some cases for the last couple of years. And I'm hoping they're going to share with me some reflections on why they think this collection matters, what works are their particular favourites, what stories that we've uncovered particularly interest them, and where they think we might go to ensure that these works are enjoyed in classrooms for many years to come. Our previous two episodes have delved into the life and times of Naomi Mitchison, who, with Jim Tyre, started the Argyle Collection in 1960. We've also explored the world of East Africa in the 60s and 70s, the places that Mitchison frequented when she was buying art for schools. So with me today are Madeline Kahn, my counterpart at Argyle and Butte Council, where she is the cultural coordinator. Madeline came to Argyle and Butte from a career in museums education in Edinburgh and Glasgow. And the Argyle collection is just one small part of a larger portfolio, but she's very much on the front line taking these uh, works of art into the classrooms. We also have Elikem Logan, one of the research assistants on this project. He was an undergraduate student at St Andrews when I asked him to come on board back in 2018. Elikem has been responsible for re-attributing several of the works, including the wonderful Henry Tayali painting, and he's also produced the poster designs for our exhibition. He's just finishing up a master's at St Andrews and he's heading off to Oxford to do his MSc in African Studies shortly. Also with us is Meredith Loper, the other research assistant, who, like Elikem, was an undergraduate back in 2018. She has also contributed invaluable research and reattribution to this project, and she helped write some of the artist labels that you can still see at the Borough Hall in Danoon. After St Andrews, she did a master's at UCL and is about to start working at the National Gallery as a research officer. And finally with me today is Tawona Sitholi, UNESCO Artist-in-Residence and Research Associate at the University of Glasgow. Tarona is a poet, playwright, storyteller, musician, and is affiliated with the programme at Glasgow, Refugee Integration Through Languages and the Arts. He's also the co-founder of the arts collective, Seeds of Thought. Tawona is an expert in community arts, in engaging and inspiring young people in creative practice, and it was in this capacity that Madeline invited him to lead the first school workshops inspired by the Argyle Collection African Works earlier this year. Okay, so with, with, uh, with no further ado, um, Madeline, could you maybe start us off uh, just by telling us a little about what the Argyle Collection is. I think at this point, a lot of people do have some sense, obviously, and we talked about it in the Mitchison programme uh, earlier in this series, but could you give us a sense of where the African works fit in this collection and perhaps what, what we knew about them or the status of them, I guess, before we started this project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Argyle Collection was um, founded in 1960 by Naomi Mitchison and an art teacher called Jim Tai, who later became an art advisor. Um, and the idea was that they wanted to um, create a collection for young people in Argyll and Butte because of the absence of museums and galleries. We're in a slightly different position now because there are more um, art galleries, mm -hmm. museums in um, Argyll and Butte, but we're still quite a remote authority with the second largest local authority in terms of geographical area mm. um, so this is a school's collection of artworks it was collected in the 60s 70s 80s and so we've got quite an unusual collection we've got these amazing artworks by Scottish artists but we've also got this African collection they were exhibited in the exhibition at Inverary Castle in 2011 as part of a big HLF project but latterly they were on display in the library in Danoon in Danoon library mm -hmm. um so Kate when you initially approached me they were they were on display but we, we then took them down because the library moved to a new venue um, and then we were looking at this kind of research project. Yeah, and it's fair to say that with the exception of Samuel Lintero, who we've really emphasized a lot in this series and in the exhibition itself, with the exception of Samuel Lintero, almost nothing was known about the other work. Um, they were part of the Public Catalogue Foundation project through, which is now Art UK. So the, the works, the paintings were, were um, a part of their website, but 
the works on paper we knew very little about and there was quite a lot of errors or names were recorded incorrectly on the catalogue that I was given when I started in this post. Yeah, there was there was a lot lacking in terms of what we knew about the artworks. I mean, we've talked about this elsewhere, but these are the kind of infrastructural challenges of something that was quite a utopian project, this idea of having museum quality collection, but without the infrastructure of a museum. So without having people who are managing the catalogue, managing the records, managing, it's this fantastic democratic concept of taking art to the people but the long-term maintenance of the project is a challenge and this is where it would be nice to bring in Meredith Nelly Ken because one of the things that we were able to do I guess at St Andrews was to um, assist Madeline a little bit in producing research and information tracking down the stories um, and fleshing out some of those biographic entries that were, as Madeline says, a little lacking until a couple of years ago. Meredith, do you want to come in first and just tell us a little bit about, you know, what what you did on the project, some of the works that you worked on, perhaps one in particular you were excited or interested uh, by? Yeah, so I kind of took, I think it was six in the end, kind of works that I really focused on and sort of began the uh, investigative process of sort of praying exactly who they attributed to and then further delving into the biography and situating those within their proper contexts. One of the sort of most rewarding, I guess, uh, works was print by Lucky Sabia, who is a South African artist who lived between 1942 and 1999. And the work that we have in the collection is titled Sangoma, although we didn't know that at the time. It's a 1975 woodblock print, and it's got these really beautiful kind of abstract uh, forms and these really rich reds and blacks and kind of yellow tones. Um, And it's very complex in the way kind of all these forms sort of lattice together on the page. And it must have been very complicated to actually print this work. uh, We didn't have a uh, proper attribution to it at the time, but luckily, Unlike some of the other works, Lucky Sabia's signature was rather clear in terms of sort of translating. And as it is a print and was one of several editions, it was numbered on the base um, along the bottom of the work. And so those gave us some really valuable clues to kind of begin the hunt. And so I think in this case, one of the best trail that we ended up uh, picking up and following was through old auction catalog entries. Uh, several versions of this print had been sold previously and so through online records of these auctions we were able to sort of decipher that uh, this particular print was actually part of a series of 15 works that compromised a larger portfolio titled Umabatha which was an illustration of a play by the same name written in the 1970s by a South African playwright, uh, Welcome Asomi, and it's a sort of retelling of Shakespeare's Macbeth, uh, sort of dramatizing 19th century Zulu history and culture. That gave us a really good jumping off point to kind of dig further into Lucky Sabia's own history. And through that, we were able to discover a really uh, sort of interesting link uh, between the subject of this particular print and Sabia's own biography in that his father was a Sangoma and a Sangoma is a traditional Zulu healer. And so this print, which sort of depicts three Sangoma or the equivalent of the three witches in Macbeth, it's sort of taking reference from childhood memories of Sabia's own father and uh, some of the forms in the work have been likened previously to kind of the artifacts used in these consultations that his father had with his clients. And um, so that was a really interesting kind of connection to be able to make. This work was actually one of the most popular that Sabia had, and I think was ended up being exhibited in London as well, which is where we think it was most likely that Mitchinson ended up purchasing the work. Oh, I think it gives people a really wonderful sense of the kind of deep dive in terms of research that you and Ellie Kim were able to do on these individual works, but also the ways in which 
these individual works can unfold onto multiple narratives. So the Umabatha print provides a way of centering conversations around Lucky Sibia as a, this mm -hmm. remarkable, remarkable man with a remarkable personal story and trains at the Poly Street Art Center. And you can open onto conversations about the training of black artists in the era of apartheid. But then Umabatha itself, you can see why Mitchison may have been drawn to it because she was so invested in this idea that art could build bridges of understanding. That's actually a phrase that she writes in one of her books. And the fact that Welcome the Somi saw in Macbeth, the Scottish play, the great Scottish epic, yeah. resonances of Zulu history. You can sort of see that Mitchison would probably have been attracted by that story. Now, with all of this wonderful work you've done, Meredith, I'm very much hoping that the Sangomas print is going to inspire some great conversations in classroom. So, Elikim, I wonder if you might come in at this point and tell us a little bit about some of the work that you did. Sure. Um, so much like Meredith, um, my job was to help out find as much information as possible about the African work in the collection. And um, we, when we first encountered the work, we kind of split it uh, between us to see which ones we would look at. So I had, um, a few of them were untitled completely. And this one was untitled as well, but it had the name of the artist as Henry Tayali. Henry, well, it was Henry Tayaz at the time, but it was because his signature on the um, canvas was he had clearly written it and kind of run out of space towards the corner of the image. The L and I looked like a Z almost. So we looked at we looked all of these paintings up online through the the, um, the website at the time. And so we had some indication of, of what the work was before we got there. But um, for me, encountering the pieces of work in person really changed the whole project. And it took it to another level up because, for instance, with the Henry Tayali, which was the one which captured kind of most of my attention and interest, it, it's only it's a small piece of it's, it's, it's oil on board. It's about half a meter, um, a half a meter by a third of a meter. So seeing it in person and seeing how small it was and being able to take everything in um, kind of gave me impetus to go find out what was really going on behind the behind the work. I, I was really drawn to the, the painting because of the use of colour, a very, very vibrant reds, browns, oranges, yellows, super warm. Also the use of pictorial space, the way that the artist played with pictorial space, laying figures um, on top of one another and kind of making them recede into the in, into the uh, the background towards the top of the the composition I, I thought it was a very skillful sort of use of figuration actually I hadn't encountered it or works like it in the modules that we had done in, in African modernisms you know it's the work of the Zambian artist Henry Tayali this is a this is a big attribution he is really renowned for making these scenes that you've you've given us a sense of with the painting of very densely packed space, a bar or a cafe or spaces of social life in Lusaka, in the Zambian yeah. capital. What, what did you find out in the course of your research about Tayali's reputation in Zambia? Well, yeah, um, I, I was, it was pretty tough to find any information about him just through the Google searches and looking for books and, st and stuff in the, in the libraries in St. Andrews. After doing some digging, basically, there was the, it's called the VAC, so the Visual Arts Council, which is, I guess, the equivalent of Art UK in Zambia. Mm -hmm. um, their headquarters space, the gallery is called the Henry Tayali Gallery. So mm -hmm. it kind of, um, it, I thought, okay, maybe we're onto an artist who's bigger than I first thought. So I wrote to the, well, first I phoned them because I wasn't sure whether their email was active so I phoned them I placed the call to Zambia someone picked up the line I said is this the Henry Tayali at gallery they said yes well I think well I found I think there's a Henry Tayali in Scotland um they were like okay well email us so then um wrote the email out got it to them and actually received a really um really comprehensive really thorough sort of visual analysis of the work and cooperation that the sort of people who worked there who had access to Henry Tayali's work really felt that this fit in um, uh, as part of his sort of catalogue of work. And so that really just kind of confirmed everything. And it, it was nice to know that there was a whole community who really, really re respect and revere the artist 
in Zambia, it kind of made the the fact that the work is here in in Scotland and in, in, in Argyle, I don't know, it heightened the feeling that just the feeling which comes along with the whole the whole project thus far, which is this kind of feeling of interconnectedness and and um, a collectivity between not just the sort of local community in Argyle, but somewhere in Africa, there's you know, there's a whole nation of people who respect the yeah. artists just as much as these kids who get access to it are able to sort of encounter it and and, and enjoy it. So it, it just kind of heightened the experience having that having it go full circle and actually be confirmed. But there were a few other ones like that. I remember I, I would call the Catherine Nankia prints, mm-hmm. but they they were sort of black and white and gray. And we looked through a lot of those prints and um, they looked quite similar. So mm-hmm. uh, we traced them back to a, a show a exhibition university exhibition mm-hmm. at Makerere College in, in the 60s or yeah. so. Naomi Mitchison must have purchased them at, at, at the same place there. So those kind of experiences, I mean, just those little discoveries, that was really rewarding. And um, yeah, Henry Tayali is a great example of that. This is another amazing example of how, you know, literally taking the time to really study the signature, not just saying oh, it looks a bit like this, so we'll just put it in a database as that, but to literally decipher the, the, the name of the person and then to go online, similarly to, to Meredith, opening onto this remarkable story about this remarkable individual who has a you know, significant national reputation in Zambia. As you say, Eli Ken, part of the, the kind of excitement there is that the students can know that they're not just exciting because they're from far away, but that because they're by really important individuals. Tawona, I would love it if you might tell us a bit about the work that you did earlier this year, and maybe you might like to pick up on things that Meredith and Ellie Kim have said about the sort of opportunities, I guess, that these works represent. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's great listening to everyone just now because I, I stepped into the space um, with all this work already happening or already being done. So, yeah, um, I think uh, Madeline will remember how excited I was when we first got in touch and then we, we had our chat, our three-way conversation and uh, so I already, on a personal level, I, uh, I was really connected to these works and I was very intrigued at the era that they came out of and the idea of this change uh, in, in the kind of the social and economic life, political life uh, across the continent. And my own home country was still to come later, but I know this wave was going through. So yeah, I, I was very excited. And um, we, we, we then had the, the, the challenge of how do we, engage the young people uh, online and sort of get a good rapport with them. And so, yeah, I think- Because it was lockdown, that's the, that's important to <laughs> emphasize actually. Like it's yeah. one thing to be in a classroom and seeing these things in the flesh, but you were, you were kind of tasked with inspiring some responses through the medium of the internet in the midst of the lockdown. So that's an additional challenge. <laughs> yeah, and the teachers, I have to really uh, mention the teachers here too, because they, they made everything really uh, work so well. So we, yeah, we had uh, some of the kids when when the classroom at that time, and some were at home. So it was a mix of that. And the kids were very generous because normally they like having their their screens off, but quite a lot of them were having their screens on, and that makes uh, things easier, you know. When you, so yeah. So how how do you get from you know an image to uh, you know written text? So this mm-hmm. was more or less the the task we had but yeah we we just started exploring through color through seeing what the stories are so this was a really interesting thing the idea that you know paintings they tell these many stories that you've been sharing i love the idea of um, investigating to find out the names of these artists so yeah we were on a bit of a, a detective trail just trying to find out more about what, what is it about the colors? What is it about the shapes? What is it about the characters in these paintings that uh, attract us? So every everyone of, of us uh, was looking at those things and uh, we, we came up with so many um, amazing responses. We created some really funny stories. Uh, Madeline will remember some of the stories that came up. <laughs> so there were lots of laughs in the classroom. It, it was really great. The kids were amazing. We managed to do some bits of music together, we did lots of movement together. Uh, so that was really an amazing time. So yeah. You were using two quite different works too, right? So you had the Henry Tayali that 
uh, Ellie Kim has just fleshed out the story of in one school, right? And in the other school, you had one of the Tinga Tinga paintings, which is a very different style of painting. The Mandurade, you see the, the bird with the stealing the snakes, yes. the eggs, the distracted bird and the snakes stealing the eggs. Yeah, that's um, where the initial idea of the project came from, is that the idea that that was based on folk tales, but we didn't necessarily know what the tales were. So we were thinking about storytelling, working yeah. with a creative writer. And mm -hmm. I knew Toyna through um, work with Glasgow Museums, but also, yeah, as part of the uh, Borough Redevelopment Project. And, um, you know, the, this idea that you can work with groups of people and you get a completely different interpretation of an artwork. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the kids' interpretation of Henry Tayali, for example, are completely different from what I would have come up with. But, yeah, just the, the joy that the, the joy that they experienced through, through these works was fantastic. And their language, uh, the vocabulary they developed, but also this idea of voice that, that um, you know, the, the experience in the Odissi painting, the, the experience of the tree is going to be completely different from the experience of the bird or the insect. And, mm -hmm. you know, so you, you, you've got these kids writing from the point of view of the tree, which is amazing, you know, yeah. talking about being heartbroken and, you know, <laughs> while another, another child was looking at the Henry Tayali and was thinking about, you know, the music that would have been playing, what were they listening to that, you know, that, they would be listening to ACDC or um, <laughs> something, you know, jazz or something completely yeah. different. But, you know, their interpretations were really important. But this idea of voice just really came true. And yeah, some great words is sort of slick it. I, li I like that on a great <laughs> British word. But, the, you know, diminutive, we're having all these really amazing words. <laughs> I think it's an honour to... Uh, not only Naomi Mitchison and Jim Tyre, but the artists themselves, that the work is still being reinterpreted because that's the that's the point of you make the work and then you put it out uh, and, and people see it and I, yeah. I, I love the image of a baobab dance floor that was one of the yeah <laughs> <laughs> sadly Henry Tayali passed away a long time ago died very young which may in part have contributed to the fact that his international reputation is not as big as some of the other artists because he did die very young very sadly but we have through the efforts to formally attribute his work we did make contact with his family and his son confirmed that the work is by him but his son was so excited to understand that his father's work would be inspiring these kind of flights of fancy and these kind of imaginative journeys in classrooms in Scotland so there is hopefully a sense that we are also kind of reviving the memory of Henry Tayali and that that's a name now that a group of kids in Argyle and hopefully kids further afield now know. Just as a means of our learning journey together, we, we um, the pieces that they wrote, the, the brief, we, we were discussing it and we just thought, okay, the, the briefs would be, the brief would be for um, a 55 word piece based on the, on, on the fact that we've got 54 nations and Scotland. Mm. That's, that's where the number 55 right. comes. so that was a really cool thing mm -hmm. and the young people were also looking up for themselves trying to learn a little bit more about the continent so that was really that was really really cool and as well as you know the texts one of the schools actually they produced artworks as well of the Adusi painting which are just beautiful uh, so that that's an added and unexpected thing you know yeah and the teachers really were so generous and, and and kind and same as the young people so yeah so the two primary schools Kilmartin and Taviallink that's right Madeline right yeah. those two schools the works of those schools are on display currently in the borough hall and we're gonna we'll find some other ways of making sure they're publicly visible post exhibition as well but Tawona obviously led the creative writing side of things but this by extension seems to have also inspired visual arts related mm. projects which is great because they're the Mande, the Mandu you see the Tinga Tinga painting is painted in that the style that we associate with Tinga Tinga, which is very distinct graphic patterning, quite a, a flat, bold colored background. In the classroom, they've looked at the formal qualities of the painting and they've, you yeah. know, actually brought in some of the kind of the graphic spots or the stripes or other things to create. And my absolute favorite is the Tinga Tinga stag. That's still like, so there's this kind of Scottish landscape. With a, with a stag painted in the Tinga Tinga style with these kind of little spots on their body. The, in their classrooms, they've really got to know how the works are formally mm. constructed. And the same can be said for the Henry Tayali because in the class did this wonderful group portrait. So each individual member of the class did a sort of portrait of themselves using the rich colours that Elikem got to know. And then they put them all together to create this busy collaborative 
torturing. Yeah, I think the whole idea with working with those two particular schools was to kind of pilot this idea that if we were to loan these artworks to schools, how would yeah. they react to it? What would they want to know? What would they want to find out about the artists? What questions would they have? Um, but also how these works are relevant across the curriculum. So, you know, how they're relevant to literacy or social studies or so, you know, a lot of them were kind of going onto Google Earth and exploring what these cities would have looked like. Mm. And, you know, then now how it compares to where they live now, you know, Tony did this kind of like ice breaking exercise where you had to find something yellow in the room and someone came back with a folder we were like oh what's what is the folder and they were like oh it's cow passports it's it's <laughs> passports for cows i've never heard of this but it's, oh. it's kind of like using color or using artworks to have these conversations about where they are like what 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 the world around yeah. them is like and how that compares with the world in the paintings was really yeah. really fantastic i think that's the exciting bit beyond the project for me looking where the exhibition has gone and who's been involved with it because I mean, just speaking art historically, the the first time that uh, people might have access to a treatment of paint like this, like with the Henry Tayali, might be in post-impressionism or uh, the first time um, people might encounter something that looks like an African scene is traditionally Picasso and we're taught about that. Mm -hmm. So it's really amazing to see that school children get to interact with this sort of compositions and this sort of, um, this depiction of figures in this style way before you know they actually are aware of what the canon is i the way for me it is it, starting to break down this idea of um having separate sort of bubbles of modernity and uh, students can actually see that you know this is going on in kampala this is a market scene this this was this was happening in um in zambia in many places in africa and they can they actually are engaging with the work as a as if it's depicting a sort of modern scene or something to do with modernity before they're actually having to take into account what does this mean? Um, how advanced were these cities at the time? So I think if any of these students are to come and do art history 10 years down the line, it would really, I, I would be really intrigued to see what kind of approaches they took. That's so important to flag, Elikem. I think the, the, the paintings are like, uh, they're like stamps on a letter that was written sometime in the past mm -hmm. to be delivered to these yeah. people in this day where they can engage with a, a, a medium that is just interested in talent, expression, creativity, and imagination. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a very good tonic for how, you know, the reporting can, can be slanted for, you know, what we're used to hearing about Africa, the continent. It's, it's mm -hmm. a, yeah, mostly you know problematic stuff. So this this is a, is a very big um, kind of deal, I think, for young people to just engage with something African that is not around the usual issues that we see. I mean, the the kind of starting point for the whole project was Samuel and Tiro's painting Chopping Woods, and that particular painting, but also Sam Sam and Tiro himself, offers a great opportunity to, to kind of stop and pause in terms of what artists on the African continent at this moment in time saw their work doing and participating in. And that is participating in conversations, obviously within their own newly independent nations or the region as a whole in terms of, you know, national pride, Pan-African solidarity. But in the case of Sam and Tiro, was also an ambassador and a diplomat. And, you know, and that, so there is a cognizance on his part of a desire to project an image outwards too, to kind of engage internationally, to be in charge of, the story of where you come from, that that story mm -hmm. has through time been told by other people. Plus in that first workshop when um, the, the first one was just Kate and I and the teachers and the kids looking at the artworks and we were talking about, we showed them images of the artists and we were talking a lot about, you know, what does an artist look like? How does an artist present themselves? And, mm -hmm. you know, that idea of the ephemera in the exhibition as well, the stamps, this idea of how, how you present your country, what, what you want to present about it. And that being a, re a really lovely stepping off point. Okay, so um, does anyone have any other favourite works of art or pieces that, or other stories that are associated that are just were really particularly interesting? Um, still back to the Sabia work, but just based on what we were just talking about with controlling the own narrative of these particular countries and being in control of the image that's being projected out into the world, that because Lucky Sabia was sort of producing art under apartheid, which because he made uh, his woodblock 
print in 1975. And during the 1970s in South Africa, television was actually banned because it was sort of uncensorable and, and the apartheid uh, regime wanted to control the image that was being projected out internationally. And so the fact that uh, Sabia was sort of illustrating this uh, Zulu history uh, dramatized by Welcome Masomi and then projecting that out into these London galleries and circulating it through his prints, which in a similar way, I mean, not as cheap and accessible as a stamp, but is also a multiple and therefore much more widely available just through mm-hmm. its, uh, you know, multiplicity, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, is is really important. And I think it's fabulous that uh, this, this story, which um, and this image that was being curated by uh, Black South Africans under apartheid is being able to be studied by these students now in Argyle and hopefully further afield. Yeah, I love this. Um... You know, for me as a poet, you know, I, I foolishly or otherwise spend my time grappling with language. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't miss my attention that uh, the Sangoma calling calling a Sangoma a Sangoma is very powerful because if you hear the translation of that, you start hearing words like a witch doctor, you know, and I have a poem, a little funny poem I just wrote about questioning. Is this a witch or a doctor? You know, which, which one is this a witch who is also a doctor? What's going on? <laughs> So the power of language, you know, a sangoma is a sangoma. And then when yes. you start saying witch doctor, so there's even in the language itself, mm-hmm. the fact that the piece is called sangoma is, is a really powerful thing. Yeah, that's absolutely. Elikem, did you want to, do you, you look like you were going to say uh, something? I, I wanted to follow on from, um, actually, Meredith's point fits in quite well with this, but I was just um, thinking about the sort of the historical and political climate in Africa at the time of, when most of these works were collected, um, most of, well, a lot of African countries are coming out of independence. And as um, as we've mentioned, the sort of independence era optimism and uh, kind of push to self-identify or to create this national identity is really important for most of the artists in the collection and just in Africa at the time. But it's also, what is interesting to note is in the 70s, in the 60s is when we start getting the the post-independence political turmoil in a lot of African countries. And so I that project of self, um, well, self-determination in terms of an identity or whether that be a visual, artistic um, or cultural identity for the African countries kind of falls off again towards the period that these, these works are being collected and, and added to the collection. And so um, what what st- sticks out for me is that this idea of Africa as a dark continent, which doesn't interact with the rest of the world, um, kind of Africa seems to be, or a lot, a lot of countries seem to be coming out of that with independence. And then when the conflict starts, it kind of goes back into that for a bit where the world kind of views Africa as nothing is really happening here. So I think that the the choice or at least the timing of when these works were made and added to the collection is significant because they are sort of the last, the last pieces of the optimistic uh, national identity. And soon after that, Africa starts to fall back into that same kind of narrative. So if ever there was a point where, you know, there was some confusion about between students about um, the sort of political climate or whatever, people can look to this work and say, look, like this is the type of stuff that was coming out yeah. of Africa during the time of you know the coups and 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 the civil wars and 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 what have you and there is there is always thing there are always things going on especially from a cultural perspective the the artists are so important because artists just render what they feel what they see what they what troubles them and you know and and um, there's also I, I saw an interesting quote recently by Brecht you know the, the German theater maker and normally we say artists you know they they um they lift a mirror to society, but Brecht says artists should really smash that mirror. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so I think, I think, yeah, um, I, I love the fact that the, these works are there and they they have their own world that they reside in. You know, they're not caught up in, as you say, you know, in, in conflicts, you know, in whatever the artists will feel and see at, at, at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The point that Alec and you're bringing up about sort of, yes, you're at this moment of uh, 
identity uh, conflict and, and, you know, local identities conflicting with national identities and these newly formed national identities, but it's also, there's these works because they're coming from such a wide range of different artists, those who have been both traditionally uh, sort of formally trained, but also sort of self-taught artists that I think this collection really helps kind of promote conversations about the identity of an artist itself and what it is that creates an artist. And I think that especially when bringing these works into schools and working with them the way that you, Tawana and Madeline have been and sort of also inviting them to create their own art um, sort of from their impressions that these works are giving them and sort of considering, well, you know, themselves as an artist themselves and reflecting on what being an artist meant for these people at this time. Um, it's also a really wonderful sort of conversation point that these works sort of incite. Oh. I think this is so important as well. I don't think there's any uh, kind of assumption on certainly on our part that these works are offer some sort of comprehensive history or, or you know, can in and of themselves be the only way in which one might encounter elements of African history, but they do offer the opportunity to at least instill awareness to exactly these sorts of things that Ellie Cannon Tawona and Meredith are alluding to in terms of deep historical complexity and that actually break, I love this idea Tawona that you set them a writing task that is 54 words plus one, you know, 54 countries plus one, um, because that with formal, the formal makeup of that, exercise immediately emphasizes or gets away from this idea of a monolithic African continent. It immediately ma makes students stop and pause and think about the individual units, specific number, you know. Madeline, do you have a particular fam favorite piece? Is there any one, any one of the ones in the collection that you particularly love? I find that really hard because I think favorites change from time to time, but yeah. I think, um, oh goodness. I think just, I suppose the Tayali is my favorite at the moment, but just because of the way that the kids interpreted it and the joy that they found in it and the, the connections they found yeah. with it. And just that idea of you, you saying about, you know, debate and excitement and this idea of what, what do we teach and how do we teach it is, is so relevant at the moment. And so that's why these, these artworks are fantastic. All of them are fantastic. But I also love the connections you've made with Catherine Nankia in terms of yeah. you know, her story, the way that she interpreted that beautiful print um, so yeah, I suppose there's Catherine Nankia and the... Um... Well, the Catherine Nankia one is great because Elika mentioned it briefly. It was one that when we went to Loch Gilpeds High School and we unpacked these works, all of us, Meredith, Elika and I were all like, wow, this is such an amazing print. Uh, but all we had about it was the signature was C Nankia in the corner. I think there was a, there's a date, um, but we didn't really have anything else. And Elika, I think you were tasked with trying to track her down, but we could not find any information at all. Um, but it's a really remarkable print called Youth, actually, the title Youth is on it, so we know it's about youth. But again, that was colleagues at McCurry College who, a professor at McCurry who was able to say, oh no, Catherine Nankia, actually her name is Catherine Nankia Katonoko Gombe, and she's a professor at Entebbe, uh, at Nkumba University in Entebbe, and still a practicing printmaker, and so we were able to find her personally, and she was able to share with us something about that particular print it's a print all about coming of age basically yeah i think once we found the once we discovered the print there were a few others like it which belonged to some other artists and we uh, it was c nankia and i looked up the name and i found so, i think a newspaper uh, archived newspaper um sort of entry about this exhibition for macquarie college where students had been which students have been working on I don't even I don't even think it had I think it had one image and that image wasn't the Nankia it was one of the sort of unattributed prints mm -hmm. as well so I thought this could be Catherine but we never kind of confirmed it so I don't think we put it on the website or anything like that I, I we might have been very um tentative with it and then we received the confirmation but uh, yeah the composition is amazing and uh, again it's it's one of those things she was in her final year of university doing um about to become a practicing artist as she is now so uh, the sort of uh, anxiety about youth and this idea of going into the world and it, it matches it kind of puts the whole um 
the style and the composition into context now because yeah I, I think it, it lends itself very well to that sort of interpretation of, of things um yeah it's exciting because it's also just from doing the undergraduate in art history and then coming to do this project it's been crazy to to apply those skills of interpretation and think that your interpretation is going to be sort of the prevailing one uh, when people come to when people come to encounter it it, it, it had um it led to a sense of fulfillment in taking the degree, which I don't think that I could have found without this project, um, especially exploring sort of the practical extents of, of, um, of doing art history. So whether that was just trying to figure out what the provenance um, of the work was, looking at the insurance records to see whether there were any um, discrepancies between the name, the title in one, yeah. in one record versus the other, or just doing the conditions reports and just looking really closely, um, measuring the size of the canvas, things like that was really amazing because we, we really get to do that in the course. And um, I think people who do art history degrees end up doing things like that a lot. So yeah, um, yeah it, it was really, that was, that, was a, that was a great experience for me. But also now I've, it's all a kind of a nostalgia because there was that, there was that, every time I talk about this project, I think back to the undergraduate art history and learning art history and applying it there. But thinking about the children interacting with the work takes me back to high school. And um, when I was doing fine art in high school and when, whenever you learn, I mean, I don't know how it works now, but when you do art in school, they teach you, they tell you to copy artists work and you have to keep doing that till you know how to draw or at least to you have some sort of your own language. And that doesn't really come until university um, when you start developing your own style. So you do get sort of indoctrinated into a, into a canon and you learn works bit by bit by doing, by copying them. And actually you get very, you kind of, they stick in your mind a lot because you had to look at it for ages. So it's amazing that to think that there are students who are doing that with this work because um, I can just, I, I just picture some, some child in Lord Gilpet going to bed every night, dreaming of Henry Tayali, seeing those images in the head. <laughs> <laughs> if they do end up going down a creative pathway, um, it would be interesting to see in which ways this has worked its way into their, mm -hmm. their artistic language and, um, and things so. It would be very exciting to think that we might have inspired some young art historians. I mean, that's partly... Well, Madeline and I have talked about too that like even like as a field as a subject to study it's often considered the kind of preserve of the elite but these works that offer this opportunity to kind of do art historical inquiry in the classroom and to study works that are not in this yeah. canon I'm assuming Elikem you never studied African artists or no, never not once if I had an African artist I had to go find the work myself beg the school to buy the book you know that whole situation it was Cezanne it was Picasso, it was Brock, you know, the Cubists, the Impressionists, uh, the Futurists, you know, those, those people. <laughs> so, some of the youngest children who were looking at these paintings this semester were five-year-olds in the primary school in Argyle who had Samuel and Tiro hanging in their classroom. And, <laughs> you know, when, when Madeline and I called in to say like, hi, you've got a Sam and Tiro in your classroom. Um, you know, I don't think they quite appreciated the great yeah. importance of the fact that Sam and Tiro's work is also hanging in MoMA in New York, for example, as well as their P1 classroom. But you could tell that they were really excited about having this piece in there. And if that is one of the first works of art they see, it's something very cool. I think there's something um, else as well about um, celebrating scholarship within all this. And I, I, I was thinking of what Mary you're talking about, the experience you know, expressing yourself, your self-identity. So there's something about young people looking and seeing the importance of scholarship because we are all coming with our own discipline and, uh, you know, um, field of work that we're coming from. And, uh, you know, we talked about voice, as you we were saying, Madeline, uh, voice. And so I think there's something to celebrate scholarship here that this, you know, it, it was the, the tireless work of, the, you know, the original collector Naomi Mitchison, and then um, the fact that Kate, you you picked up on what Madeline was doing, you know, um, the work and the connection that you made together, and you know, if you take it even right back to the fact that it's it's interesting this this irony that these 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 works um, 
like for me, what, what, what Elegan was talking about, I, I, I went to school in, in Zimbabwe from primary till high school and to, to college days. And I never, I never saw an African thinker, <laughs> an important African person in all that whole syllabus. So it's interesting that uh, the bridging, you know, creating these bridges uh, as, as in, in, the name, in the words of uh, Naomi Richardson. So I think there's something very important about celebrating scholarship. And, and of course the oldest university is, is in Mali. So uh, I, I think if you, if you ask the 100 kids where the oldest university is, <laughs> you're unlikely to get that as a... It's in Andrews. <laughs> but it's also that idea of kind of demystifying what a poet is or what an artist is or, you know, of going, yeah, you could be an artist, you could be a poet. And, you know, that idea that like we did a, an exercise where they had to edit a sentence and just the stuff they came out with and their, their imagination and their creativity and just kind of going, yeah, that could be you. And, you know if kids don't meet artists poets academics then how are they going to know what they do for a living or what 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 why what they do is important has anyone got any other kind of thoughts on where you think this project could go next i mean i think uh, i know you are working on trying to get this uh this exhibition to kind of travel about um talking about discussions of bringing it to st andrews possibly Glasgow, Edinburgh, and how that kind of mirrors uh, what Jim Tyre was doing by taking these works in the van and driving them around Argyle and Butte and really just making them as accessible as possible. Because, um, you know, movement isn't, uh, isn't possible for everyone, especially I think that has become quite noticeable now when we've all been sort of trapped at home it is a possible audience not only just of course on the internet and in a digitized form but being able to interact with them in person because I think we've all had that experience of of seeing them in person and, and seeing the impact that sort of being able to engage with them materially has versus mm -hmm. just seeing a, a reproduction on the internet yeah absolutely well we hope we do hope certainly that there will be an opportunity for the exhibition to travel we hope also to kind of continue to build connections with our colleagues in Tanzania and Uganda in particular. Um, there are a number of art spaces in Dar es Salaam that uh, I think would be great to continue to build connections with. And Makerere University, as it now is, the art school there is an obvious point of connection. We still have two prints, as you well know, we have two prints that remain unattributed. They are an ongoing mystery. We do not know who the artists are despite our best attempts to unpick the signatures. Maybe a school student in Argyle will answer that and will answer that mystery for us. Maybe we'll inspire them to do a bit of super speeding themselves. But to some degree, that, that's something that may not be answerable until we can actually get to Kampala and see if there are any works by the, of a sort of similar comparable style in the archives there at their university. So besides the many ideas that I've shared with you guys already about where the work um, could be seen or where I could facilitate some 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 uh, exhibition space. I, I'm also hoping for some of the connections I have uh, in my home country of Zimbabwe and, and other places that I have uh, some work connections with for mm. this work to be seen there too. I think it's uh, it's only natural that uh, we try to get young people uh, around there to see it as well. Guys, an important point I just want to make, I, I mean, uh, as, a, as, a, as a big kind of thing is, I think uh, Julius Nyerere, I want to, to mention, uh, a special mention, because in the era of the hard men of politics, mm -hmm. it was, there were a lot of military kind of, and so to have an art lover as, as a president of a nation at that time, and what that meant for how schools were, were, were being set up and run. I think that is a massive example for, you know, young people who look and think, what's the point in art? You know, what, mm -hmm. what, what, what does art do? I think that is a, a huge story that for me, it, it resurfaced with this and I've been, I've been revisiting it with so many people. Well, so yeah, Julius Mayero, we spoke about last week in the podcast, you know, the first leader of independent was Tanganyika becomes Tanzania. And it's sort of no surprise then that one of his top ambassadors is Samuel Lentiro, a painter, uh, who was then an, you know, an art professor at Makerere College. Uh, you know, what, what qualified Sam Lentiro to be a diplomat? You know, he, he hadn't had a kind of political career or at that point, 
But, you know, Julius Maori asked him to take on the diplomatic posting to London. And that already speaks volumes about where art fit in Nayori's sort of vision of independent Tanzania in the 1960s. And I think just to go back to those conversations earlier about the ways in which these paintings open onto dense political histories, important cultural histories, that's just a really strong example of that. Madeline, do you want to say any final comments about, you know, what where you would love these things in the Argyle collection to go or uh, any any particular sort of visions or ideas for things where we might go next? I think I'm tied up in the practicalities rather than the visions at the moment. But I mean, you know, <laughs> having come from like a massive civic organisation like Glasgow Museums, where there's, you know, hundreds of staff and, you know, you've got whole departments and to being in Argyll and Butte, where we've got this amazing collection, but you know, that there needs to be so much love and care and conservation curation taken on it. I, I would just love to see that um, this really important collection is used and it's looked after properly. That's my, yeah. that's my um, dream, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, well, we hope very much that Argyll and Butte uh, continue to treasure and celebrate this collection because it's a remarkable public collection. So that's the end of the third conversation in the series. Shortly after I stopped recording this week, Tawona remembered that his favourite work in the Argyle collection is Mugalula Mukibi's print of cattle, which was posthumously retitled Modest Wealth by his son Enoch Mukibi. So here's Tawona telling us why this print is his favourite. <laughs> yeah, um... Cattle are just uh, unbelievably significant in, uh, in in Zimbabwean kind of historically, you know, in our culture. They're actually uh, the, the unit of wealth for a long time, even in the dowry, you know, in, in traditional marriage ceremonies. They they featured uh, very importantly, and uh, so yeah, for me, it, it, it's kind of it's a link to my my own my own elders before me, you know. Uh, so I. It, it was the one thing that would be bequeathed to uh, each generation. So you know, my 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 father, for example, inherited cattle from from his from his father and their family, and uh, I inherited from him. And even though <laughs> I grew up in the city, there's cattle in uh, in rural Zimbabwe waiting for me when whenever I get there. So yeah, I, I guess I'll be passing those on to my daughters who are born in Scotland. <laughs> So that brings us to the very end of the Data Danoon conversation series. If you've listened all the way to the end, we really appreciate it. You can go to our website and share any comments, suggestions, responses to things that we've discussed over the course of the series. And for the record, one of my favourite paintings in the whole collection is a nocturnal fishing scene by the artist Louis Azaria Mbaguni. It's a very beautiful painting. It's one of the first, we think, that Mitchison bought, probably in Kampala in 1966. What has been remarkable about this painting is that along with Catherine Nankia, we've been able to make contact with the artist, Louis Ambaguni himself. And he tells us that it recalls a Christian theme. It speaks to the idea that Christ recruited his disciples amongst the fishermen. We hope that we will be able to have a much more extended conversation with Professor Mbaguni in the coming months so that we can, just as we have with Henry Tayali's work and Lucky Sibia's work and Jack Kadarakawe's work, that we can hopefully open up the much bigger story of this work too. Thank you so much for listening and do go to our website, datadanoon.com, for any further information.